All right, so today I will be discussing The Vanguard in the 21st Century by Comrade Ajit. And this essay is in Of Concepts and Methods on Postisms and Other Essays, which is a book uh, published by Foreign Languages Press. You can find it there. I'll link it in the show notes. Great essay. It's like seven, eight pages, I think. Really good essay for comrades to discuss together. Um, And it actually starts off talking about Chavismo and the Venezuelan struggle under Chavez and Maduro governments. But what it's really about is about engaging a new social feature, as we'll talk about, that Ajit identifies, and really how we are to do united front work in light of this new social feature. Uh, So I came up in my reading... Uh, what, 11, 11 points. And I'm just going to read my 11 points, and then I have just a little, like, extended reflection on the point that I came up with. These are not um, Ajit's, like, 11 points within the essay. Uh, but, again, I really recommend reading the whole essay, and I hope this is a good, solid introduction to his work. Okay, let's begin. Point number one. Despite its many advances in condition for the Venezuelan masses, Chavismo, with its, quote, rainbow coalition, end quote, thesis, has failed to disprove Marxism's, today Maoism's, organizational form of the vanguard party, and that the Venezuelan masses have been unable to become self-reliant, broad-based their economy, and fundamentally break from its dependence upon U.S. imperialism. All right, so Ajit starts us off by acknowledging the many ways that the Chavez and Maduro governments were able to better the living conditions for the masses of Venezuelans generally, as shown by things like the increase in lifespan, food intake, access to education, etc. Um, But then he points to the ways in which Chavismo, in its attempt to replace Marxism, today, Maoism, has failed to equip the masses to win their independence from U.S. imperialism, from the oil economy, and from the old bourgeois bureaucratic institutions that existed prior to Chavez. Point number two. Positively, Venezuela's Rainbow Coalition reveals a new feature of society, that of a large number of social groups becoming conscious of their oppressive existence. So, the struggle of the Venezuelan masses as waged through their rainbow coalition is not entirely negative. The positive aspect seen in their struggle is that numerous social groups are expressing a heightened sense of suffering and desire to end their suffering. Point number three. Chavismo's rainbow coalition thesis argues that the coalition of sectional interest groups and organizations itself, as well as the spontaneous development of the consciousness and self-organization of the masses, disproves Marxism's scientific claim of the necessity of a proletarian vanguard party in the struggle to abolish capitalism. While Ajit does not argue why all of these specific assumptions are incorrect, Assuming the reader is a revolutionary communist, Ajit does engage the particular accusation that communists give primacy to a sectional, quote, proletarian interest, end quote, as separate and above all other social group interests. This, 
Ajit suggests, is a non-Marxist understanding of so-called proletarian interests. Rather, the interests of the proletariat are the interests of all humanity, and thus the proletarian struggle assumes the struggle against all forms of exploitation and oppression. All right, so essentially, the liberation of all humanity, and I would add the planet, from capitalism, colonialism, and imperialism is based upon the interests of the proletariat in that it is class exploitation that lies at the base of all forms of exploitation and oppression. So it would be incorrect to say, as the postmodern Rainbow Coalition thesis and many dogmatic and sectarian communists do, that the interests of the proletariat are sectioned off, separated from, and hence raised above the interests of the numerous sections of the oppressed masses. And why is this wrong? Because of the objective position of the proletariat in capitalist society in a world of imperialism, the interests of the proletariat and the interests of particularly exploited and oppressed groups are one and the same. None of us can be free unless the proletariat are free, and the proletariat will not be free until all forms of exploitation and oppression are abolished. And this is so for the proletariat because even if you've begun the socialist transition to communism, established a, a, a proletarian democracy or a dictatorship of the proletariat, it doesn't mean you've ended the possibility of the re-emergence of exploitation and the road back to capitalism. So, until we've developed our relations and consciousness into a communist world, proletarian interests are the interests of humanity, and the proletariat must keep the interests of all oppressed groups at heart. And at the expense of being redundant, to the dogmatic communist, I would say that proletarian interests are inseparable from the interests of LGBT persons, women, Africans, Muslims, indigenous peoples, you name the oppressed group. It is entirely wrong to think class exists outside of those concrete forms of oppression existing today. Yes, it's the base that gives rise to other forms of exploitation and oppression, and in that manner it is primary, but it is not separate or sectional or unrelated. And to the eclectic revisionist, or perhaps the postmodernist, I would say the class struggle is primary. Class struggle is the fundamental struggle from which all other struggles emerge. The foundational contradiction at the base of all other contradictions. It is wrong to imagine class as a sectional form of exploitation that interlocks equally with other forms of sectional exploitation and oppression. Intersectional ideology is non-Marxist, is an abandonment of historical materialism. And so, to truly take seriously the concerns and issues of gay-identifying people in Pakistan, or Spanish-speaking immigrants in the U.S., or religious minorities in India, or women in South Africa, is to understand how these particular forms of oppression relate to the class struggle in the given society and in a world of imperialism. Getting this right will greatly shape our mass work and united front work. Let's continue. Point four, the self-conscientization. All right, hold on. Let me see if I can say that 
<laughs> say that right, the self-conscientization of more and more socially oppressed groups aids as opposed to undermines the class struggle. So rather than seeing the heightened sense of suffering and heightened manifestation of resistance and struggle in your country as a negative, simply because it has yet to come under the leadership of the proletariat, we need to see this as an opportunity to guide the new initiatives and creations of the masses toward the all-embracing emancipatory potential of a proletarian-led class struggle. When oppressed groups gather in protest or study or organization, we should celebrate this creation, not tear them down because they unlikely adhere to revolutionary science. The self-conscientization that is occurring is more an opportunity for class struggle than a barrier. Point number five. Communists must combat sectarianism internal to the party that imagines sectional proletarian interests as existing separate and above the sectional interests of other exploited and oppressed groups. Again, proletarian interests are not separate from women's interests or African interests or indigenous interests or LGBT interests or you name it, right? Because those forms of oppression faced by those particular groups are inseparable from capitalism's class exploitation. Erroneous ways of perceiving class will lead us to erroneous ways of relating to the masses and their presently self-developed organizations of resistance. Point number six. United Front Work does not assume that every organization in society will be led by the party. All right, so this point was particularly helpful for me because while I personally never consciously imagined that every organization of the masses during a protracted people's war will either be a friend and under the leadership of the party or an enemy and beyond the boundaries of the United Front, I have heard dogmatic Maoists here in the U.S. suggest that pretty much everyone is an enemy if they are not Maoist, which really is silly. But more concretely, it is entirely wrong and counter-revolutionary itself. And no one here is immune to this kind of alienating dogmatism. I'm sure, had I not encountered Ajit's more dialectical understanding of United Front Work and non-antagonistic approach to conscious sections of the oppressed, uh, I could have been persuaded of the dogmatic line. But it seems obvious to me now that every organization of the masses will not be in the United Front. And this creates some contradictions that need properly understood and handled. But we'll say more about this as we move on. Point number seven. There are two main errors communist parties make in viewing the new societal feature of numerous sectional organizations independently struggling for their own separate interests. The first sees all other organizations as creations of reaction. The second while acknowledging communist failure in correctly grasping and handling the issues of various social groups, seeks to correct its errors and continue its attempt to lead every organization. So here, um, I did think it was interesting for Ajit to say that these are the two main errors in United Front work, both being errors of sectarianism. I wonder why there wasn't a mention of the other side of the dialect, which would be a liquidationist 
line. But perhaps speaking to revolutionary communists, Ajit might say that our greatest tendency is less to make right errors that liquidate ourselves and more to make left errors in thinking and practice. I'm not for sure. I, we'd have to ask them. But that question aside, I can't help but think of sectarianists in the U.S. who see everyone who does not adhere to their ideology as enemy. Basically, if you're not a revolutionary in theory and practice, then you're the enemy. And all enemies must be dealt with antagonistically, of course. But this, of course, is not simply wrong theoretically, as it gives primacy to people's subjective ideas over the objective conditions of the masses, and abandons any concrete analysis of the composition of the masses in the U.S., i.e., who needs to be won over and who really is our enemy, but it leads to practice that alienates these self-identified revolutionaries and prevents them from cultivating any genuine relationship with the presently non-revolutionary masses we need to link up with. But pertaining to United Front work specifically, Ajit wants us to think about how both of the sectarian errors he mentions assumes every organization uh, that the masses participate in needs to be either created or led by the party. This is the fundamental error he is identifying here. Point number eight. All right. In light of the changed situation that positively has heightened the awareness of the masses of their oppressive existence and negatively ushered in a greater commitment to reformism and sectarianism, communists still need to organize the various sections of the masses and mobilize them toward overthrowing the basic structures of exploitation and oppression. The point here I wanted to make was that Ajit says, and I'm paraphrasing here, okay, so here's this new social feature, right? The task of the Marxist, today the Maoist, is to properly grasp and understand the situation to then correctly handle the situation and its contradictions. I mean, it, it sounds like a simple point, but that's an immense challenge. Point number nine. While engaging in ideological struggle with identity politics among oppressed sections, a proletarian vanguard should unite with their opposition to the existing system and the struggles brought forth by their heightened awareness of their oppressive existence. And so, in a similar manner as the previous point, Ajit, I think, points us to the mass line in relation to identity-based groups and organizations, unite with them in their resistance to capitalism, colonialism, and imperialism. Unite with them in their rage against oppression and exploitation and unjust suffering. And we do so with a Maoist political line based on a concrete class analysis, as opposed to liquidating ourselves into the thinking and practice of non-Maoist ideology, but we put out policies and programs and ideas that would solve, potentially, their issues, and we openly support them in their struggle. That's what it means to unite with them and heighten their consciousness and struggle. All right, point number 10. We got two more. In relation to United Front work, communists need to wage internal struggles against commandist conceptions of leadership instrumentalist conceptions of United Front work, which is basically when the United Front is used um, solely 
um, according to whether the party is strong or weak in a particular area, and idealist conceptions of the party being above errors. Earlier on in the essay, Ajit says communists are not salvation-dispensing saviors. And so for our 10th point, I think it's important for Maoists in the U.S. to really focus not just on grasping and handling external contradictions, but correctly handling the internal contradictions within the working group, the organization, and eventually the party. As politics will guide both the army and united front, we must diligently critique and self-critique within the vanguard, fail to principally, openly, and concretely struggle ideologically amongst ourselves, and we will fail to serve the people. All right, our 11th and final point. Generally, relate to non-united front organizations and their criticism in a non-antagonistic manner. This is really crucial. If presently we cannot handle criticism, even harsh criticism, from a radical liberal feminist organization, or an anti-communist progressive group, or a non-Marxist black nationalist group, or even from a revisionist organization, then we will not be able to unite with oppressed peoples and develop an all-embracing proletarian-led mass struggle. So let us humble ourselves and see these kinds of challenges as opportunities for development and learning. All right, that's all I got. So thanks for listening in, and I hope you check out the essay that is linked in the show notes and share this episode with comrades. Um, Be encouraged, my friends. The masses are, in many ways, ahead of us, and Maoists are working to come to grasp our present situation and tasks. Okay. Um, As always, follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find some bonus stuff I'm doing on Patreon for free. And thank you to the uh, few people who are supporting the show on Patreon with just a few bucks a month. Really appreciate it, y'all. All right, my friends, we will talk soon. Peace.